0: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Yes, it is, Scott. Thank you. Hi, everybody. An hour to go until the big Fed decision at 2 p.m. Eastern. At 2.30, the press conference where Chair Powell is expected to clearly telegraph a rate hike in March. Is it sell the rumor, by the fact? Market's having its best day of the year, or could we still be surprised to the downside? We'll get you the state of play as we await this afternoon's big events. And then Tesla reports after the bell, the stock down 10% this year. But Musk might be back on the call. We have a full preview. Plus, buy or bail? After the sell-off we've seen, our trader has three stocks to buy right now and one to bail on. And it might surprise you. That's still coming up. But We begin with this rally into the Fed decision, and Dom Chu is right here. Right with the here. Numbers. We're back.
1: In our normal <laughs> spots, and you know, and I'm loving. I'm going to love this whole buy or bail or love it or list it, Kelly, because I know you like that one as well. <laughs> uh, the Dow Industrials right now off the session highs. We're up about 354 points. That's one percent gain there. Not too shabby. The S&P is at 4430, up about one and two thirds percent right now. But the Nasdaq Composite right here is the real standout, up about two and a half percent. 13,901 the last trade there. The reason why I want to highlight it is we're off session highs for the most part for some of these other indices. But the Nasdaq is right near its best levels of the day right now. At one point at the lows of the day, we were up about one and a quarter percent. So, again, doubling the gain so far from the lows. We'll see if that trade holds into the afternoon. With regard to that NASDAQ trade, there are certain key parts of the market, specifically with regard to technology, that are seeing some of the bigger bounces intraday. I'm going to use the lens of ETFs to take you through them. First of all, semiconductors, generally speaking, via the ETF route, up about 4% right now. Software overall, up about 2.5%. Cloud computing, kind of part of that software industry as well, up about 2.5%. And then the Global X FinTech ETF is up 3% right now. Think about names like Coinbase. Think about names like Affirm Holdings, PayPal, Block. you got to get the idea. Those parts have been very hard hit over the last several months, catching a bit more of a relative bid today. And then from an earnings standpoint, two losers and one winner to highlight. Here we got Boeing, the biggest drag on the Dow, down at about 3% today. Worse than expected results on a quarterly basis and some more concerns about its 787 Dreamliner aircraft causing some real downside weakness there. at and had been at one point positive in the pre-market trade, mixed results better than expected earnings and profits however concerns about some of its subscriber growth in wireless better growth in its streaming service all a mixed picture there and corning glassworks optical solutions display glass up about 12 and 3 quarters percent the best performer in the S&P kelly better-than-expected results, and aspects of its current quarter and full-year forecast also better than analyst estimates. So there you are, the earnings recap right there. I'll send things back over to you.
0: Yeah, and a nice upside uh, surprise there for once, Dom, thanks. All right, let's talk about some of the key words and phrases that investors are listening for with Chair Powell this afternoon. Steve Leisman is here to set the stage for us. Steve?
2: Hey, Kelly, yeah. While a consensus has been reached that the Fed will signal a March rate hike, future hikes, and balance sheet reduction— The Fed has some leeway to tilt the overall impression from today's meeting towards the hawks or maybe towards the doves. So look for the March rate hike to be signaled in the statement by the Fed saying something like, quote, it may may soon be appropriate to raise the policy rate. They've used that kind of language before. Beyond that, there are considerable uncertainties. Here's the consensus on this frequency. Quarterly hikes are what's priced into the market right now. That could perhaps be signaled by the Fed saying something like rates may rise at a measured pace. A hawkish tilt would be every meeting is live, signaling possible hikes at every meeting, which is not how the market is priced right now. Or a dovish one saying there's no preset course or no agreement yet on the number of actual hikes that have to happen. The consensus on the balance sheet is the signal balance sheet reduction maybe likely by summer that would come from the the chair's press conference, but no agreement right now on the amount. A hawkish uh, tilt would be saying substantial amounts this year. A dovish tilt, no agreement on balance sheet reductions just yet. So there's little reason for the Fed, in my opinion, to lean against the consensus. The Fed has an inflation problem, and the sell-off and higher rates is what it needs, really, to help tighten financial conditions. Recent market volatility seems unlikely to deter it from the focus on inflation. Rather than hawkish or dovish, I think the most likely result is the market being dissatisfied with the lack of clarity. I'm not sure the Fed has precisely figured out for an agreed-upon road ahead. Kelly?
0: W- one quick follow-up, Steve. We spoke with David Wessel yesterday, who watches the institution very closely uh, at Brookings now, and he was saying he doesn't think the Fed needs to be so communicative and concerned about communicating every possible twist and turn of its intentions to markets. He thinks they should, you know, just kind of, kind of keep people guessing a little bit more.
2: Well, there's a time. <laughs> it reminds me of the old song, you know, a, a time for, uh, for a time for all seasons. Um, uh, there's a time to keep the market guessing, and there's a time when you want to guide the market. Um, I almost never disagree with David. I don't know if I disagree with him so much on this point. But right now, the Fed provided guidance, Kelly. That guidance led the market to tighten without the Fed really tightening very much at all. I think that guidance has served the Fed well. To the extent that it needs the market to tighten more or is happy with the current tightening of the market, it will provide the guidance that will either uphold that or further it. So um, I think the Fed is served well by guidance. You know, look at look what's happened. The ten sorry, The two-year has moved 50 basis points, and the Fed hasn't moved at all. That's the kind of power yeah. that the Fed has with its forward guidance, and it'll use it to the extent that it's necessary.
0: Yeah, it's been a much bigger move than last cycle, too, which tells you in some ways it's different. Steve, thank you. We will see you soon, our sure. Steve Leisman. Let's bring in our Fed panel now for more analysis. Stephen Whiting is chief investment strategist at Citi Global Wealth Management. Subhadra Rajapa is head of U.S. rate strategy at Societe Generale. And Stephen Rusciuto is chief U.S. economist at Mizuho Securities. Great to have you guys all here. Steve, let me start with you on actually a point Steve just made in at the end there, which 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 is, has the market already done the Fed's tightening? Why does uh, the Fed need to still actually do the rate hikes that people have been talking about?
3: So, Kelly, it's for Stephen Whiting? Was that the?
0: Yes, for you, sir. So,
3: look, I think the Federal Reserve uh, has created a great deal of policy uncertainty by bringing in its balance sheet and its rate hike outlook uh, immediately into the picture. So this is a policy that we have only one historic experience with. Um, it's something that uh, we will we believe again that effectively tightens monetary policy simply by discontinuing it. Right. The effects of past bond purchases, again, when they roll off, uh, has some substitution effect. Uh, and so I think what's really important for Powell today is to just clarify the Fed's intentions. You know, we uh, again have had a, a legacy of inflation behind us. The economy has been as disrupted as a wartime economy. Uh, and it wouldn't have been possible. What unemployment rate could we have had that would have stabilized prices in this environment? So they need to be uh, less accommodative. Uh, we need stimulus to roll off. We're gonna see a perhaps double digit declines in federal spending. Uh, but we need to be clear that the Federal Reserve's goals and whatever choices they make are still consistent uh, with extending and keeping this expansion alive rather rather than, uh, you know, taking reckless risks with it. And I sure. think market, which moves so rapidly, they're looking to, to fourth quarter 2018 is the only historical precedent.
0: Right. And and there are many out there who are saying do not look to the playbook from last cycle as it relates to this one. And this year will be the test as to if it's different this time. Subhadra, what do you make of the Bank of Canada not hiking this morning as expected? Is that a precursor of what uh, the Fed at some point uh, may do as well?
4: That's a very good question, because the Fed faces pretty much the same dilemma as the Bank of Canada, which is you have a slowdown, potential slowdown in growth. Uh, in this, in the later half of the fourth quarter, coming into the first quarter because of Omicron. So, you know, they really have to weigh those considerations versus, uh, you know, just going ahead and raising rates. I still think a March rate hike is pretty much, uh, you know, baked into the market pricing as well as I think the Fed's going to guide us towards a March rate hike. But really what we what they'll be looking to see is how conditions evolve between now uh, and, and March, and I think that that's why they take a very measured approach, if you will, for rate hikes. Because the market, I think, got a, you know got a little bit ahead of itself by pressing in too many hikes for this year, more than four hikes for this year. I think the Fed is going to really use a very measured approach. To, to policy normalization, both by way of rate hikes as well as uh, the balance sheet. And they have a lot more leeway this time around. You know, I take
0: that point, Steve Rusciuto, but I also look at the unemployment rate as low as it is, inflation where it is, and say, you know, they are, quote unquote, behind the curve. Do, do you think they are here? Do they need to tighten aggressively or do you think they could be making a mistake?
5: I think they're well over their skis. I think the market is well over its skis as well about what the Fed needs to do. We are going into a period of significant fiscal policy restraint. Um, You know, my estimates show we could be looking at as much as a trillion dollars in fiscal policy constraint this year at the same time that we've already had, as your previous guests indicated, and as Steve Leisman indicated before, the market is already priced in four rate hikes this year, four rate hikes next year, if not five. Uh, They're already pricing in quantitative tightening. The two-year note uh, has already moved up 50 basis points, as Steve Leisman indicated earlier. That's a big move in a very, very short period of time, at the time where especially where the economy is also experiencing fiscal constraints. And this is a major, major difference. Most economists and the Fed underestimated the ability of the CARES Act and the stimulus being provided by the Fed to bring the economy back into a recovery as rapidly as we saw it after in 2022, in 2020, I should say, and got us back to an expansionary phase by the second quarter of 2021. Nobody anticipated that. And I think underestimating the fiscal constraints impulse on the economy in 2022 would be just as big a mistake as they made back then.
0: No, and it's a good point because both of these have obviously contributed to the strong demand that we've seen. And now one wing is certainly going away, maybe both. Real quickly, let's go around here one more time, if we can, very quickly, and talk about the market setup here. Steve Whiting, you still don't like U.S. equities. Any other advice to investors before or after uh, today's meeting?
3: Well, we like companies that have enough cash on hand uh, and are profitable enough to raise their dividends. That's our biggest position. Uh, We do think that some of the growth uh, shares that have come down, uh, we have seen, obviously, uh, markets that are not perfectly fast and rational. We think that shares in cybersecurity, uh, shares in areas like payments and fintech that have fallen uh, very, very sharply and indiscriminately here are long-term opportunities.
0: All right. Subhagra, quickly on rates. Let's take the
4: 10-year. Where do you see it headed? Well, for the year, I think we we see ten-year yields gradually rising towards uh, you know two and a quarter percent. Over the near term, I feel that the front end of the, of the yield curve is very efficiently priced in for heights for this year and perhaps well into next year. So, if there's any sort of communication on the balance sheet, I think you're, you're going to see that uh, you know play out in the back end of the curve potentially, and that's really where I see the risk for yields to continue to rise in the back end. All right, we'll watch that, Steve Roshu. I don't think you're in the business of giving investment advice, right? <laughs>
5: Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I would tell you, I think market price action has already told you we've reached levels at the front end of the curve where investors are willing to put money to work. You'll have to have to look at the three-year note earlier this year, True. earlier this True. month, uh, the two-year note, the five-year note this week. The back end, the 20-year came decidedly stronger than the than the 10s and the 30s did because we're at higher yield levels. So it also showed that once you get into that 185, one, 192% area, you've got level where investors are willing to put money to work. And I think exactly as true and the exact same thing is true on the downside in terms of the U.S. equity market. What we saw happen the other day and the response to that I think certainly shows you where money's willing to go back to work. People are beginning to see value in these markets.
0: All right, well said. We will watch all of those levels if we uh, hit them again. Guys, thank you very much for joining me today. Stephen Whiting, Subhaja Rajapa and Stephen Rashido with a little preview. Now to Kayla Tauschi, where a number of CEOs are meeting with President Biden today as the president hopes to galvanize support for his Build Back Better plan. We just heard Steve Rusciuto talk about the loss of fiscal and the impact it could have on the economy. Kayla, who's in the room? What's on the agenda?
6: Well, Kelly, the White House is trying to resuscitate support for its signature social and climate spending package and the backing, at least broadly, from corporate America so far has been elusive. So today, CEOs from companies like Ford, HP, Etsy, Microsoft and others will be at the White House to hear from the president directly on this. Cummins chief Tom Leimbarger is going to be one of those executives that we hear from, and I'm told that he is going to be touting some of the climate elements of this package, specifically the tax credits for hydrogen production. Likewise, CNBC caught up with Salesforce co-CEO Mark Benioff on his way in, and he also said it's about sustainability.
2: Look, uh, we're in a major, we're we're in a climate emergency. That's why I'm here.
6: But executives are gonna have to be walking a tightrope here. GM CEO Mary Barra also chairs the Business Roundtable, which has opposed the tax hikes at the core of the funding for the package, specifically a 15% global minimum tax and taxes on foreign earnings as well. I'm told these executives are going to be promoting some elements of the package while keeping a hard line on taxes. Manufacturing lobbies have also been pressuring Democrats uh, for months to vote against this package, but if there is going to be a path forward, Kelly, the president needs more ambassadors from the business world, especially with skeptical moderates warning that the package could spur inflation and hurt growth. Kelly? Absolutely.
0: Kayla, thank you very much. Kayla Tausche with the latest at the White House. Coming up, Tesla shares higher ahead of earnings after the bell, but the stock's having its worst January since 2016, down 9%. We talked to the street's biggest bull about what the company has to deliver next, plus an exclusive interview with Stiefel CEO Ron Koszewski. On the heels of their record quarter, the stock's up a percent or so. We'll get his thoughts on the rates, the recent market volatility, and today's Fed meeting. We're about 45 minutes away from the decision on rates. Don't go anywhere. Full coverage on the exchange and power lunch continues. Welcome back to The Exchange. Tesla reporting after the bell. The shares are now about 4.5% today. They are up, though, less than 10% over the past year, over the past 52 weeks. Analysts are watching for updates on the new Austin and Berlin factories, as well as the reappearance of Elon Musk on the call. But will there be any other surprises, like an update to the vehicle roadmap? For more, I'm joined by Colin Rush, senior analyst at Oppenheimer. He's got a 1080 price target. And Pierre Faragou is an analyst with New Street Research with the street's highest price target of 1580. Welcome to both of you. Colin, I'll just start with you. What do they have to say today? Um, And I mean, it is interesting the shares are up less than 10% now over the past 52 weeks.
7: Yeah, you know, I think the stock from here is really looking at their their ability to really tap into the self driving uh, opportunity, and so I think we want to see uh, for them for the shares that have hired to hear something about the recurring revenue model around that software, as well as their ability to start monetizing some of that that technology in a little bit different way.
0: Uh, Pierre, the Uber bulls have been absolutely right about Tesla to this point, but sometimes I see your projections for it to be you know whatever a ten trillion dollar company or whatnot by the end of the decade, and and go. Or is it just going to be a trillion-dollar company and it spends the rest of the decade just making millions and millions of millions of cars? But does that necessarily grow its valuation from here?
8: Yes, Kelly. So there is a, an incredible um, you know, contradiction uh, that you can see in where Tesla stands today, which is that it's a trillion-dollar uh, market cap, but it's still a startup with 1% market share. Uh, so, I, I do agree with Colleen in the long run, you know um, what, soft, uh, what, what Tesla can do in terms of self-driving capabilities do matter a lot. But in the near term, what I see is a company manufacturing cars the way other people in the world make manufacture chips with very advanced factories, very efficient factories. Um, they have unlimited demand so far, 6 months wait times for all cars. And, and competition is honestly nowhere to be seen. Everybody is announcing electric cars, some of them look very good and should be doing very well in the market. But nobody is in a position to ramp volumes in a way that could, you know, overshadow um, the very rapid growth of Tesla. And so the reason why I'm still very positive about the stock today um, has nothing to do with FSD, nothing to do with all the additional opportunities that the company could make. It's just the fact that Tesla is very well set to grow at least 50% its production this year. Mm -hmm. And so revenues will grow faster than that because Tesla is forced to increase prices to push back on demand and margins will continue to to, to expand. So I'm very, very uh, positive this year about the core auto business for Tesla.
0: And Colin, it has to be said and can't be said enough that the problem for EV makers is not demand. Everybody loves the prototypes. Everyone loves the Rivian and the Lucid and the this and the that and everything that Ford and GM are coming up with. The problem is making them at scale in an efficient way and to, the, to meet that demand. We just saw Ford, this was more of, a, a, of an ICE vehicle, but again, it has pr- production capacity challenges. So how quickly can the rest of the auto sector bring online enough EVs that it will seriously dent Tesla's market share?
7: I don't think they're gonna they're gonna catch up. At this point, what we've seen the, the company do is design uh, vehicles for production that are far more efficient, but also evolve the the powertrain. And this has been a core part of our argument is around the chemistry within the batteries. So one of the things that we're looking for today from a technology update perspective is just where they're at with the 4680s. The acquisition of Maxwell Technologies a few years back has been I think incredibly important in terms of that dry electrode process technology that, that Tesla bought to really change the the form factor and the functionality of those batteries. And if they're able to really ramp that up, the efficiency and get some decent yields off of it, they're going to be able to drive a lot of costs out of the powertrain, as well as the simplicity of the design, which should drive manufacturing costs much, much lower.
0: How much of a hit is it, Pierre, that they are pushing the Cybertruck apparently into what looks like 2023 now? And the cost probably won't be $39,000. You know, this is the way it's going to kind of uh, compete against some of the newer Rivians and other- on the market. So what's the uh, sort of the bear case there?
8: Yeah, so uh, it's a good question, Kelly. And if you think about all the things Tesla could update us uh, on and what Elon Musk is likely to talk about tonight. Uh, so as you said, you have the Cybertruck and then you have ramping the Berlin factory and you have ramping uh, the Austin factory. Uh, they could give us an update on the design progress for the $25,000 Uh, cars they want to bring to to the market at some point. And there is also the the, the Semi, Tesla Semi. It's so many products that they could put up, because we know demand is here, as you mentioned, very right. Um, But now, as Colin said, I personally have only one question. you know, Where are the batteries going to come from? Hmm. The real constraint today is battery supply. So the, the most important thing you want to hear tonight is what's up with battery supplies, and not for in five years from now, but for this year, actually. Mm. And so it's about talking to, to suppliers, to Panasonic, to Edgecam, uh, uh, and, um, um, and others, uh, and uh, CATL in, uh, in China. It's also about the, the um, internal uh, 4680 project, like the new battery cell Tesla is ramping up. And Tesla is asking their suppliers to manufacture that battery cell as well. Right. Um, Tesla in the market today is telling everybody, if you manufacture that cell, and if you sell it to me at the right price, I buy everything you produce okay. without, without any limitation. So they will need more batteries, and that's really what you want to hear tonight. And to answer your question about the, the, the Cybertruck, my personal view is that if they had enough batteries, they would start producing it very soon. But they will never have enough batteries. They have to ramp the additional volumes in the Model Y, in the Model 3. Uh, and, and doing that is taking so much batteries that It's a safer approach to push back on the on the cyber track. Right. So to answer your question, the bear case, it's actually probably batteries like, you know, that's that's where really Tesla is going to grow this year as much as they can grow their supply of batteries.
0: Very, very interesting. That is the key question uh, for Pierre. Uh, Thank you both so much for joining me. Pierre Fergu, Colin Rush with a preview of what we can expect to hear from Tesla after the bell. Again, the shares up more than four percent today. And still ahead, Bitcoin is back near 38,000 after hitting its lowest level since July this week. What can trading activity tell us about the next move? We'll ask the president of crypto exchange, FTX US. And as we head to break, here's a quick look at the Dow heat map with Microsoft and Visa boosting the blue chips. Boeing and Verizon are the biggest laggards. So we're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Here's your pre-fed state of play. We've about halved the Dow's highs. We're up more than 500. We're up 292 at the moment. The Dow's the underperformer. The S&P is up 65. The Nasdaq is up 333. That is pretty much near a session high. What's driving the Nasdaq outperformance? Microsoft having its best day since November 2020 had those earnings. Apple, Tesla, which we just talked about. NVIDIA, Alphabet, they're all higher. NVIDIA is up nearly 6% today. Still, these names are far from erasing their year-to-date declines. Apple, the relative outperformer, down just 8% since Jan 1. NVIDIA still down 21% and riding a six-day losing streak. It's the third worst performer in the SMH so far this year. And let's switch gears and look at Brent crude because it crossed above $90 a barrel for the first time in nearly eight years today. We've seen similar upward moves to WTI hanging in there around uh, seven, eight-year highs. Let's get to Pippa Stevens at the commodity desk with more. Pippa.
9: Hey, Kelly, that's right. Global benchmark Brent is above 90 bucks for the first time since October 2014. Now, remember, it was less than two years ago in April 2020 when Brent traded under 16 bucks. so quite the recovery since. The contract is up 25 3% at $90.20. WTI is at $87.60 for a gain of two and a third percent Now, geopolitical tensions are contributing to this leg higher, but experts say it might not have had this type of impact were it not for a very tight market. Demand has bounced back, but supply has been slow to respond, including from OPEC and its allies. U.S. nat gas is also in the green, and in Europe, prices continue to be elevated. Amid these tensions between Russia and Ukraine, David Givens from Argus Media reiterating that Europe is heavily reliant on Russia's gas, but also Russia can't survive without the money it gets from selling that gas. Energy stocks are in the green again today with ConocoPhillips at an all-time high, while Chevron is at the highest in four years. And a number of stocks are now up more than 30 percent for the year, including Halliburton, Chevron, sorry, Halliburton, Schlumberger and Occidental. Kelly?
0: Love the hair, by the way. They're already calling it the Pippa. Pippa, thanks. (laughs) Thanks. Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Indeed, it looks good. Hi,
10: Kelly. And here's what's happening at this hour. America's trade deficit in goods hit a new record high last month. Imports increased for the fifth month in a row as companies worked to restock inventories. Overall exports rose as well, but not as much, and food exports tumbled. A new report suggests that more than a third of airline pilots worldwide are still not flying. An industry poll of 1,700 pilots found that just 62 percent were employed and currently flying. However, that is up from 43 percent. Last year's poll of the pilots who are flying, 61 percent say that they're concerned about their job security. And on the news tonight, NASA having the opposite problem, why there is a shortage of astronauts and why training more will be difficult. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And take a look at your screen. In Indiana, a crash left a FedEx truck hanging off the side of an overpass. The rear of the truck there, blocking railroad tracks beneath. Below, no other uh, vehicles were involved. Fortunately and miraculously, Kelly,
0: the driver and no one there was hurt. Yikes, could have been a real whopper. Rahel. Icy conditions, Thank you, Rahel Solomon. Coming up, three stocks to buy after the sell-off we've seen. Our next guest has names in tech, staples, and housing, and one name she's completely staying away from, calling it dead and buried. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. The market is having its best day of the year ahead of the Fed meeting top of the hour, but we're still in the midst of the worst January ever. So where are the buys or where aren't they? Joining me now is Danielle Shea. She is director of options at Simpler Trading and has three buys and a bail for us today. Danielle, welcome. It's great to see you. And let's start with Microsoft. This one just reported yesterday the shares were down initially. They didn't provide guidance. Now it's leading the Dow, of course, uh, after the management announced a stronger than expected outlook on the call. So we're down 10% on the month, we're down 15% from the highs and you like it?
11: Yes, I love it here. You know, Microsoft very rarely pulls back to the 200 simple moving average. We we really don't see these kind of discounts on Microsoft stock. It's down about 13, 14%. The last time we got this good of a deal was during the COVID crash. So for me with, personally with Microsoft, Really, I'm averaging into this one on a very regular basis. When I get pullbacks to the 50 simple, um, that is a spot where I really like to add. I love Microsoft for a variety of reasons. I think that they have a wide range of product segments, and I think that the wide ranges are each growing individually. Everyone wants to focus on Azure, which is really important and it is growing a lot, but Think about the video game segment. I think that the ATVI deal is going to be huge for Microsoft. They've already been big in video games. People love those Xboxes. They cannot stay on the shelves. And I think in the long term, this is going to just be a fantastic growth company.
0: The Microsoft president, by the way, agrees with you. He is in that White House meeting right now saying, you know, our business is hugely dependent to the success of the U.S. economy. Just look at the positive effect on the markets today. (laughs) So there you have it, Uh, making the case by pointing to this one, which you say is a buy here. Let's move along to Costco, Danielle. Surprisingly, that one is down 14 percent to start the year. But again, we're coming off a monster year. We are up, you know, 50 to 60 percent in 2021. Why do you think this one's a buy?
11: So I love Costco again because yes it's down 14% but I really like to look for stocks that are down around 10 to 20% for solid areas for long term buys especially on a stock like this that was previously so strong. Costco fits the bill for a variety of reasons in addition to the technical reasons it's also done really strong on earnings despite all of the head- headwinds we have inflation they've had to raise prices but Costco is able to continue to grow and make money despite their tight margins because of memberships and also the e-commerce platform that they're continuing to grow. So I like it for all of those reasons, in addition to the fact that I just think that people have changed their habits throughout the pandemic and they're cooking from home more and they want more deals.
0: We certainly are, certainly are. All right, let's move along. Your final pick is Lowe's. They were also up about 60% last year in this big home improvement boom, but they've taken a beating since issuing disappointing sales guidance for the year. They're down about 10% since Jan one. Why this one? What about Home Depot?
11: So I honestly, I like Lowe's and Home Depot both. The reason why I like Lowe's a little bit better is I just think it has a little bit better relative strength. um, And I think that they're doing a really good job appealing to especially DIY, DIY people. You, know, you have a lot of millennials going out right now, uh, buying homes, making babies. They're not buying a lot of new homes, they're buying older homes and they're remodeling them and they're going to places like Lowe's. So I think that that is evident, not only just from a social factor, but it is also evident in their earnings. We've seen Lowe's beat earnings quarter over quarter. They've traded higher post earnings. We have high anticipation of those earnings reports um home depot is doing a really good job as well uh but they don't have as positive of a reaction post earnings which is why i like Lowe's a little bit better
0: all right all right all right all right so those are your buys but we call this three buys into bail so here's one danielle says to bail on drum roll please it's roku down 60 percent over the past year some might say that's a huge bargain of value danielle why aren't you buying it
11: You know I just have never liked Roku stock. It was just on this massive run. Um, It was a momentum run and it was fun to trade in the options market while it was going to the upside. And of course I mean if anyone's had a great time shorting it on the way down. Um, but the reason why I don't like it, there's a variety of reasons. Well, number one, it's fallen 67%. I mean, because of that, number one, you have so many people that are in this stock that have bought it probably up near the highs when the momentum was so strong and anytime you see any kind of positive news in this stock, it rallies and you're going to have those people wanting to get out. So it just creates so much overhead resistance. The technicals have broken down. I also think that the case for the Roku in general is not very strong because we have smart TVs now. I mean, is it really a necessary product? I think the Roku, you know, at some point is going to turn into something like a VCR where it's just not necessary.
0: Such a diss, the next VCR. So I also wanna make the point, Danielle, that there are other pandemic names, if you wanna call them the big beneficiaries that you would be a little cautious on here, is that right?
11: Yes, that's correct. Everyone keeps asking about the pandemic names because they're quote unquote on sale. But I think it's really important to differentiate between something that is strong and has solid earnings and is pulled back in a correction versus has completely shifted gears. And most of the COVID names that we were following throughout 2020 and 2021 are all in this basket. We have Peloton, for example, we have Chewy, Chegg, these names, you know, they got really popular and you had a lot of retail traders piling into them. But once they shift gears and especially once they're down 30, 40 percent um, and a lot of these companies, they only had positive quarters because of extreme growth. We just can't look at those as though they're ever going to go back to the way that they were.
0: All right. So interesting. Three buys and a handful, we'll call them, of the bales. Danielle, thank you for your time today. It's great to see you.
11: Thank you. Danielle
0: Shea with Simpler Trading. And there's the clock, folks. 20 minutes until the Fed's rate decision. Up next, we'll talk to Steeple CEO Ron Kraszewski about the impact of rising rates, what he sees next for markets, and for IPOs. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Shares of Stiefel are up 8.5% after a record year. Investment banking, one of the standouts just like we saw already with Goldman JPM, up more than 40% in their fourth quarter from a year earlier. On the earnings call today, Stiefel's CEO, Ron Krzyzewski, said the company was the fifth most active equity underwriter last year, and its pipeline for 2022 is even stronger now. Joining me now in an exchange exclusive is the Stiefel chairman and CEO, Ron is Ron Krzyzewski, it's great to see you back, Ron. Welcome.
12: Oh, thank you. Good to be with you, Kelly.
0: You know, a lot of people in the public are asking what is going on with these payouts to bankers this year because now we're seeing all the headlines about multi-million dollar bonuses and this and that and the other. Is it and we report on the show about how strong deal making was, you know, 4 trillion globally last year. Why was investment banking so strong?
12: Well, again, a lot of it you can trace back to the impacts of the of the uh, pandemic on the economy and how many companies had to shift business plans to deal with, you know, really, a pull forward, pull forward of years of digitization and how people behave, and that led to a lot of shifting of capital, whether it be through M and A or capital raising. So it's been a very busy year for the bankers and for the markets in general.
0: We've seen it have a negative effect in some ways on names like J P Morgan and Goldman because people were surprised by how high those expenses were to pay out to those bankers for the work that they were doing. The reaction uh, to Steeple looks much different. Your shares are up eight and a half percent. Are you facing the same uh, uh, expense challenges?
12: I think all firms are. I think the difference for Steeple is we're a highly variable compensation shop. We we pay for performance. And so if revenues go down, uh, our compensation is going down. And to the extent that we have you know, various pockets of, of pay inflation, and we absorb it within the company. Uh, we target a comp to revenue. So uh, we all face challenges, but from a shareholder looking in, they're going to see uh, some consistency in the way we pay people. And it'll be tied, highly correlated, Kelly, to revenue.
0: Sure, so let's talk 2022 then. What's in the pipeline? Because obviously right. the underperformance of a lot of SPACs and IPOs leaves people wondering if the, those those doors are quietly closing.
12: Well, it's going to be, you know, it's always hard to talk about uh, pipeline in equity capital markets transactions. Our pipelines are very robust on M&A. Our pipelines are almost double what they were a year ago, and wow. we see a lot of potential activity. I'm, a, I'm somewhat cautious on, say, IPOs and on the equity capital markets because the markets are going through a, a, a bout of vol- volatility here, and it's difficult to get deals done when the markets are jumping around like they are right now. January's been been very volatile. The VIX is expanding. So, uh, yet we'll get through this. And I'm optimistic uh, for the year in, in banking.
0: On that note, let me ask you about the Fed. And, you know, as somebody in the financial sector, do you think their tightening is appropriate? What would you like to see? And what do you think it will further do to markets?
12: Well, the Fed is the Fed is clear. I think the real question is: Is the Fed going to change its plan here? And I don't think it will. I think everyone's waiting for this conference. This, uh, you know, what's going to happen this afternoon? I think what's going to happen is going to be nothing in terms of what is expected. The, The Fed has said that they're going to tighten, and the Fed has said that they're going to roll off the balance sheet. Now, if there's any verb, you know, any words that make that more dovish or more hawkish, uh, the markets will react. My personal belief is there's not going to be anything said today that's going to change what was put into place as a plan, you know, just, what, about a month ago. So, uh, we're not going to see much. But I'll tell you, Kelly, where where I think the market is missing uh, a little bit or not taking into account is what's going on in Eastern Europe or as Putin would like to say, Hmm. Western Russia Hmm. in Ukraine. And I have to tell you, I think that that could end up, depending on how it uh, plays out, but I, in my mind, see where oil could be significantly higher and the dollar could be significantly higher at the same time. And markets wouldn't like that. I'll just say I can cut through all the economic stuff for you here and just say "Uh, markets aren't going to like that. No, and if that the, the public but, wouldn't. And I, like... and I and I think. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I just I just I just feel that, the, you know, the markets are, are not uh, fully pricing in that risk uh, uh, of some conflict uh, in, in the Ukraine.
0: Well, and you're right. As much as we've been obsessing about the Fed, we have seen markets moving on a lot of these headlines, even just this past half an hour. Uh, It's relentless on that front. And if you're right about the impact, of course, that would be doubly significant. Ron, we'll leave it there. It's always great. And and,
12: and that's why I have to I will say to you, Kelly, even though we just had a record year and we see uh, volumes and activity at very high levels as it relates to the market in general, I'm cautious here. And Hmm. uh, and I think that There's more downside risk for the next few weeks, uh, for sure. Uh, I don't think we've seen the lows uh, in 2022 of this market. So, uh, you know, keep the faith, but be cautious um, in this market.
0: Very interesting. A bit of a warning. Ron, thank you. Like we said, it's great to have you here. Ron Krzyzewski is the CEO and the chairman of Stiefel. Up next, gold, by the way, outperforming this year, maybe because of everything he was just talking about. We'll talk to the CEO of one of the biggest crypto exchanges about this reversal of fortune right after this. Welcome back, everybody. Crypto seeing a bit of a rebound this week with Bitcoin and Ether up about 8 percent, but they're still down big this year. Joining me now is FTX U.S. President Brett Harrison. Brett, welcome. Big fundraising round. What's the valuation now?
13: Yeah, we just raised uh, $400 million at an $8 billion valuation. We're very excited about our first public fundraise as a company.
0: And uh, I saw some people joking on Twitter, why not let, uh, let the traders in? Give them a piece of the fundraise action. I, at least they still want some.
13: There's so much money um, coming into the crypto industry from VCs right now. It shows that even though there is a general risk-off uh, appetite right now in global markets, and crypto has been down a lot, from their all-time highs people are still building people are still investing uh, there's still a lot of new companies and new investment coming into the space and it's optimistic i think for the things ahead
0: do you think bitcoin's already put in the lows
13: um it's very difficult to say you know bitcoin and crypto in general are very volatile assets still i think until there's more institutional money coming into crypto um, we're going to continue to see markets be somewhat unstable in terms of their volatility which means along with those record-breaking highs, we're going to also see low downturns as well. It's difficult to know where this ends, but it's not the end in terms of crypto. This is not some, you know, long crypto winter. Again, I think all of the people building and creating uh, new companies, technology in this space uh, is going to result in some turnarounds, and uh, when exactly it's going to happen, is very difficult to predict.
0: Do you think the Fed is a factor in the sell-off here?
13: I think that when the Fed is making announcements and it's going to affect, for example, global equity, global futures markets, and there's just general um, negative uh, indications for the market as a whole or general risk-off attitudes on the market as a whole, naturally crypto is going to be affected. If you think about how much money has come into crypto from an allocation perspective, when. There's such a larger percentage of crypto in in large funds portfolios, whether that's big trading firms, big hedge funds, family offices, that naturally when we see these kinds of depressions, it's going to end up affecting crypto in kind as well. And so it's it's all becoming more correlated as crypto becomes a more highly traded asset in this uh, in this market space.
0: Are you worried about any of the yield staking that's been going on as we've seen the assets under pressure?
13: Um, it's hard to say. I, you know, I think there's such there is a pretty, you know, big, diverse asset pool in crypto. And, you know, no two coins are exactly created equal in terms of the kinds of opportunities they provide uh, for things like yields. And I, I, I don't think we can say definitively that this is uh, something particularly to worry about.
0: All right. Well, so much happening in the space, Brett. And we have, you know, about five minutes till we hear from the Fed itself. So we'll be watching all asset classes, crypto included. And we thank you for joining us today. Thank Brad Harrison you. is the president of FTX, US.: That does it, everybody, for the show You've been listening to the exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.